welcome everybody um, to this week's Griffith Asia Institute Asia Research Story. Um, I'm Renee Jeffrey, um, and it's fabulous to have so many of you joining us again um, this week. I uh, hope you're all keeping safe and well wherever you happen to be. Before I introduce this week's guest, um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we're meeting and watching um, this event today. Today, I'm on the lands of the Jagera and Turrbal people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. Um, for those joining us live on Zoom, um, once again, welcome. Um, if it's your first time joining us, please um, just keep your camera and microphone turned off for the duration um, of the event, as this helps us with the editing later on. There will be time for a short Q&A um, at the end of the session. So please submit your questions using the chat function. And don't feel like you need to wait till the end. Um, it's a great idea um, to put them up as we go, and that way we've got um, some questions ready to go when we get to the end of the conversation. Um, and as always, we will be on Twitter later in the day and later in the week once the recording is made available. Um, our hashtag is Researching Asia Stories. So this week's guest I'm pleased to introduce is Professor Diane John Dronogoro. Diane is the Deputy Head Research of the Department of Business Strategy and Innovation here at Griffith University. Um, he has a Bachelor of Information Technology from QUT and a PhD in Computer Science from Deakin University. He's currently the Chief Investigator of an ARC discovery project that's investigating the effectiveness of activity-based work environments to promote workers' productivity um, and well-being, and an ARC linkage that's designing and developing an advanced air quality sensor network. Since 2011, Dion's been collaborating with health experts to design mobile health and wellness promotion applications, um, funded by a huge range of different organisations from the NHMRC um, to the ARC Cancer Australia um, and the Ian Potter and Children's Health Foundation. His particular contribution has been focused in developing user-centred design of e-health solutions, multimodal data fusion and machine learning for the promotion of health and wellbeing. Um, including things like the detection of physical activities and psychological states by visit, um, by, via video and physiological signals. Diane has published uh, more than 130 papers in peer-reviewed journals and conference proceedings um, in computer science, but also in health and medical sciences. Uh, and in 2019, he won the Gold Disruptors Researcher of the Year Award from the Australian Computer Society. Quite a lot in there. So welcome, Dian. It's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Renee. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, um, about your career, because your profile and your areas of expertise are really, really interesting. Um, you've got this really interesting and unusual combination of computer science and health. So one of the things when I was researching um, your story, one of the things that really stood out to me in your profile uh, are things like that you've had a position in the School of Nursing and Midwifery. And that's not an obvious place to find a computer scientist. So I wanted to talk to you about how that came to be, what the stories that sort of led up to that, you know, how it is that a computer scientist ended up working in the health area. So I guess the starting point is you coming to Australia as an international student. Um, so what That's were you right. planning to study? What did you think you were going to do? Oh, I really like when we go back that far because I, <laughs> I wanted to always uh, be a medical doctor since I was in primary school. And it was always my lifelong dream. Uh, I went to Australia purely, I would like to say purely for uh, pursuing that dream because I was, well, I was a bit of a not a good student back then. I was struggling with some of my subjects and apparently 
someone uh, convinced me to go to Australia sooner so that I can improve my uh, learning um, outcomes. And fast forward, yeah, I did got uh, an offer for studying Bachelor of Science at UQ, but I had to turn down because of this financial crisis that we had in 98 for like uh, Indonesia's currency crisis that time make it into like four times lower, essentially. Uh, so we have to give, I have to give up that dream essentially and ended up doing the next best thing I thought, which is IT, which is I've always loved to play with computers back then doing some programming and so on. So that was, I thought it was the next best thing, but uh, I'm very, very pleased that uh, it brought me to where I am, to be honest. Uh, and what is really exciting is uh, when you said to me how I came about to work with the Women Wellness Program is I was very privileged because I was known back then as the um, emerging technologist. So I, I used to teach a uh, first year course and uh, transform all the IT courses in, well, here we call it the degree uh, in uh, QUT. And I used to teach uh, emerging technology. Also mobile app development was my, uh, like mobile innovation lab was my newest uh, thing that time in 2009. And uh, it just happens that the, the leader of the Women Wellness Program, Professor Deborah Anderson, that time was looking for someone who knows how to develop commercial grade, uh, kind of e-health, but also still have the interest in doing the research. So not just purely like doing a consultancy, but doing the actual research. And uh, yeah, I was just approached and, um, and it's very funny because she asked uh, Microsoft and Apple apparently or something like that. And then both of them referred, uh, refer her to me. So it was just very, very kind of them to do that. And otherwise we would never meet. And it was very cool. And in terms of, uh, we applied for NHMRC partnership together. And because of my background at the time, I've done a lot of other projects with the C uh, CRC, Smart Services. And yeah, we just got the grant and we hit it off from there. We, we built uh, uh, things together. And when uh, Deborah Anderson actually moved to Griffith, actually, um, uh, I was asked to join her, her team as uh, adjunct. And uh, yeah, I love uh, working with the Women Wellness uh, Program. Until now, I'm still a member with them because I, I do love um, you know, this notion of uh, looking at uh, e-health for promoting well-being, especially you know, I really have a very deep um, interest in terms of promoting their well-being after cancer, for example, uh, bec uh, or while they, have, uh, while they are recovering after uh, they just finished off a, um, a series of different, I would say, you know, a lot of very uh, life-threatening episodes. And it's just amazing what they're doing. Wow, it's fascinating. And to see how, you know, the two interests of health and computer science have come together. There wasn't a time after you did your undergraduate that you thought, oh, well, you'll go and do medicine now. Like you decided then that, no, it was going to be IT and computer science and to do a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I have to blame it to my PhD supervisor for doing a very good job for convincing me to stay on because I still had that dream even back then. Um, yeah. And that's why I decided at that time I wanted to do multimedia because that's, again, I always do like my next big best thing because I always thought that, oh my goodness, I don't want to repeat again my study, even though at that time I already have a job and I can sort of like, I think I can, you know, do my own study again for medicine. But uh, it was very interesting because it started off from my interest in data analysis and doing AI. And from there, I found a new fascination and I was already teaching. Yeah, it was very interesting because I do all that and then everything is just heated off from there. And it actually take away from my goal, like my initial dream of coming back to health. 
But then uh, even back in 2008, uh, even before uh, um, I met Deborah, actually uh, I've been working a lot on uh, telehealth and e-health kind of topics as well. So it sort of like then give me that new sense of purpose is that I thought, okay, even though if I cannot do uh, medical uh, practitioning, then at least I can uh, use my technology to support uh, well-being and promote health. And I thought uh, I'll stick a bit more. And yeah, it just turned out that it turned out really well. Have you ever been tempted to go into the corporate world? Because, you know, people with IT and computer science degrees are very, very sought after, but you, you've chosen academia. So is the corporate world not appealed to you? <laughs> I actually always say that I'm not the typical academic because uh, I love doing things uh, with uh, industry. So mm -hmm. I've always enjoyed um, actually um, creating stuff that is being used by people. So that's always been my goal. So even when I talk with Microsoft Research, for example, they, they told me, you know, why are you still in academic? And my answer is very much because uh, it just happens that even though I'm in academia so far, I've been very privileged to have the opportunity to produce those things at the same time as teaching students. So I thought, okay, it's sort of like, for me, I love the combination of still training the next generation, but at the same time, creating things for the industry. And I always thought that, I always share this to some of my PhD students by now as well, that I said, well, um, the one thing which I really appreciate is that if I was working with the industry, I'll be more driven by a specific goal for that particular industry company, for example, whereas uh, being an academic uh, sector, I feel that the, the, be uh, the best of it is that I get to do the research that is like basically going to then change and transform the industry directly. And yeah, I, I don't know why, but I just don't feel I'm missing out much anymore. So I, I still get to produce things that people would use and change the, uh, and kind of like transform the sector. But still at the same time, I get to enjoy doing, uh, like being like the uh, leading uh, of the particular techniques or tools that we can play with. Cool, cool. So much of your um, current work um, at the moment is on a different topic. It's related, but slightly different. And that's, you know, artificial intelligence. And I want to talk to, the, to you about that in a minute. But before we get there, um, I wanted to talk to you about the distinctly Asian focus that that area of your works um, taken on. So much of your sort of previous work's been very sort of locally focused. It's been about sort of specific solutions um, and collaborations with local partners um, and that sort of stuff like you've talked about um, with, with these health programs. But this project is, is way broader. Um, it, you know, it gets you to think about, you know, the development of technology across the region, big power relationships in Asia, um, you know, the, the geopolitics of, of all of this. Um, so I, I guess my question is, what motivated that shift from the very local sort of solutions to, to issues that, that, for example, local women have in cancer treatment to you know, big you know, regional global politics and, and so on? I would like to say that uh, it comes from the fact that I've always been actively engaged with international activities. So I always uh, visit Indonesia. Uh, I was invited to Philippines, um, been to uh, my sabbatical in 2013 at uh, NUS in National University of Singapore. Because of that, I sort of talk about my passion topic all the time. And even when I went to Norway, for example, and I start to re realize that I can connect the dots even with China, um, you know, biggest population. And, you know, when I talk with a lot of my students actually came from uh, India background as well, uh, and Sri Lanka. And at and, and the same time, is I, I realized there's a lot of, I call it the global thinking going around looking at the actual specific regional issues because every uh, i just realized that every country have a different issues 
and uh, priorities. Uh, so one thing which I uh, became fascinated with was when I was in Singapore, for example, uh, they talk about telehealth as supporting people through like the alternative medicine, for example, like combining knowledge using AI, for example, to do like question answer, uh, not just from, you know, the medical, like the mainstream medicine kind of uh, knowledge base, but they combine it with uh, some of these more traditional and uh, heritage based kind of uh, alternative treatments. And it was just fascinating. And then from there, I also realized that in Indonesia, what sort of things uh, would they find is, is, you know, like each of the different regions, I realized that they have different needs and different nuances of specific ways that they can engage with the system and different concerns, different preferences. And from there, I start to realize, I think I need to expand further. And again, the women wellness uh, program um, actually then become even more expensive because we have people in who ended up working in China, for example, and, and we start to look at uh, how can we then trans translate our uh, program into more different kind of communities and different localities because only then it becomes something that people would engage more and feel mm -hmm. that they, they feel more um, they can relate to it so I just realized that localizing the treatments or the the program was one of the key critical uh, thing to do. How did you go about that about taking this to other contexts? Oh, actually, that's very interesting because uh, I just get that example about that, uh, let's say, alternative medicine, for example. I mean, in Australia, wouldn't even, well, probably unless they are in this sort of community that they appreciate, uh, they wouldn't do that, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That's just an, an example. But ultimately, how we go about it is, I think we need to do the co-design. So uh, that's when I start to realize that the most important thing is to talk with the users. And um, I've been doing that now. Um, in my latest project, for example, uh, for looking at ways that mobile app can support uh, children with chronic pain, that was an example that I started to realize the importance of co-designing. So the more that we co-design with the users, then it only when we realize that where they come from, where they are located, uh, the kind of things that they are accessing, what are the accessible services around them. There's a lot of things that, a lot of knowledge that we can then aggregate and we can then understand the more that we understand the system uh, of the health, the local health system, for example, the way that medicine is practiced for, uh, and the kind of the professions and the kind of different support that they can get. I think it's very interesting then to, to then tailor uh, the program. It cannot be just like one for all kind of thing. Like you cannot just like, you know, I was just always joking that, you know, I, you know, like YouTube, TikTok and Facebook can definitely do. Uh, like a global kind of uh, pro uh, project like that, they still will work on specific regional uh, areas, like kind of what is their real interest around that. And because if we use uh, data-driven kind of like understanding what's going on around around the people, then we can uh, tailor and personalize the uh, and integrate ultimately the the services in a better way for them. So, um, so some of your other recent work um, that I wanted to talk about has been about um, facial recognition technology, which of course is very, very controversial. You know, we know that its use in things like sports stadiums um, have sparked an inquiry with the Privacy Commissioner in Queensland. Um, we know that San Francisco has banned the use of it uh, and so on. Why is this proving so controversial here, do you think? I think um, it has to do with identity and privacy. I think Australia is a big believer of uh, a, a very much like privacy by design. And unfortunately, when we talk about AI, when it comes to the power of it to understand uh, a large amount of data in a, in a 
very quick processing time. The, the problem is then people get freaked out. Does that mean that let's say if I post anything on Facebook, they will analyze? Well, the answer is yes, right? I mean, everyone knows already that you, you can get automated tagging of yeah. our face. Uh, and the same thing as if we go and uh, publish anything nowadays online, then I mean, the, the data is actually owned by those uh, companies like Facebook, for example, own our data, uh, even beyond the time that we delete it, for example. There's a lot of uh, their concern then is because then who owns the data and the, who is like the data custodian, I think is very, very important. Uh, so people are a bit worried about data and the use of data for the future and how they use it. So for example, I know this very well because Facebook actually do a lot of research around the citizens data uh, and not just doing facial recognition, they do a lot of other things too. And you know, the more I, I, I read their work in research as well as attending some of their uh, conference talks, uh, keynotes even, and I just got really now up to the point I realized, wow, I mean, if only people know what AI can do, uh, I wonder what is the leadership around the government of Australia to, to sort of like, you know, sort of like lead the way for uh, what, what kind of policy of data utilization uh, in our local companies, because there's so many global, globally owned companies that are you know, providing services that we gladly provide our data to. And ultimately, AI can just you know, do a lot of analysis around that, not just face recognition, it could be face, uh, facial expression. It could be also even uh, what we wear, could be uh, hair, hair preferences, hairstyle. There's a lot of things that uh, computer vision uh, can do. And even just using text mining, for example, uh, the chat uh, and then also what they post and this this is the multimedia analysis very much my background right so i know exactly that ai can also make sense and correlate between what we post on the video as well as what we type and what you know like even audio can be analyzed as well and based on that there is a lot of citizens um data that you know can then translate into something that usually is good for, for example, prevent, prevention of uh, tendency for suicidal or depression, things like that. I know that they do all that sort of good stuff, but at the same time, I wonder if then, can we really trust these companies? And I think there is this uh, trust issue ultimately is very critical now. And that's why I wrote this article of, as a working paper for GAI, because I wanted us to start thinking in Australia. I think Australia is privileged because we are, we are I mean, Notwithstanding, of course, our current declining relationship with China, for example, I always believe that uh, Australia is very much um, very good at connecting with both US and China, who happens to be at basically now this really apparent competition who will be the next superpower. And, and I think what I mean by that is now, you know, there's a lot of uh, competitions around how fast AI can do, not just in facial recognition. And I think what will be very uh, interesting from here on is, you know, what is Australia's uh, stance on this? Because ultimately then, just like the COVID safe app, for example, um, people are not even willing to turn, for example. And yeah, it remains a question, you know, where, where would Australia stand? And, you know, what is our principle? Is it by the Europeans um, standard? Or is it uh, more like a global scale? Or is it more like Australians uh, need to, to follow more like a localized uh, version of what data privacy should be because of these AI capabilities in 
analyzing the data. So I think a lot of people, when they hear about facial recognition, they're thinking of, you know, we see videos of people walking down the street in China and their face has got all the little, little squares and, and you know, there's, a, there's an image made of, of a facial recognition sort of, you know, set of data being produced. And people have, I think, this idea that, that that's what we're talking about, even as they're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and they're putting that same data out there. But is there a sense in which people see you know, that they're volunteering their data when they use social media, but that, that what we're talking about with facial recognition sometimes is something different and that's where the privacy line is? Is that is that what Australians' issue with it is? Because yeah. it's not stopping us from putting our data out there and putting our images out there. Is, is there some sort of personal choice in it, do you think? Yeah, I, I always believed in transparency of how the data will be used. Mm. And this is a real issue now, and this is to do with how much we trust the technology, as well as how much we trust, I mean, let's say the app, right? Let's say it's TikTok. Can we really trust TikTok, right? And the funny thing is there is a lot of talk, like Donald Trump just recently said, okay, if, if, um, if TikTok got bought by a US company like Microsoft, for example, then uh, we will not ban it. And, I thought, uh, and then Scott Morrison, I think, said something along the line, oh, I think... Uh, you know, this is uh, actually not Scott Morrison. I should say there's a, a recent article in the news just yesterday uh, that Australia is now looking at it independently. And apparently uh, it's not as bad as it was being perceived, you know, this TikTok security concern. And I'm just like, oh, this becomes so politicized, you know. And this is where I thought that this is a very interesting topic for, uh, you know, our international relations. Uh, like, let, let's say if Microsoft, so let's say if US bans TikTok, but Australia, said, well, independently, we feel that it's okay. Mm. And then suddenly, okay, that, that also is then US can sort of feel, okay, are you politically more aligned to China? Because TikTok is owned by Chinese um, uh, company, for example. And I just thought, my goodness, this just becomes going to be very interesting from here onward. Mm. And it becomes just more than just uh, the use of data and uh, the technology itself, but really uh, who backs it? Is it the government? Is it who says it's good enough or is it good? Uh, is it safe enough? Right. If the company has a reputation that they can maintain the security and the privacy, that's great. But if the government or the politi political figures start to um, have their say, then it becomes so politicized. And, and this is where I'm sort of trying to draw the line. I'm trying to say, well, I think from now on, I think it's going to be the war will just keep on going. I think. TikTok is just one of them. And TikTok is like a lot of people don't even know what, uh, how much data is going to be used in the AI anyways. But then a lot of people don't even talk about Facebook because um, Facebook, for example, is uh, definitely, they openly admit that they do a lot of uh, analytics and uh, AI um, kind of like powered machine learning on the data and build a lot of AI models from it. So my point is, I think from here onwards, I think the role of the government and political figures, I would say, around this will be very, very uh, interesting because people will start listening to these uh, uh, thought leaders and uh, political figures and sort of thinking, should I trust the company? Should I use the app? Yeah, and, and it, it remains a question then uh, who we should be listening to. Is it the government or is it the company or is it peer users? It's just going to be an interesting question from your onwards. Yeah, and because we don't necessarily listen to the government on this. We've seen that with, you know, the COVID Safe app. We saw it in the past with e-health records that a lot of people opted out because they weren't very sure about, you know, how trustworthy the the data storage was or who could access it and things. So we are a pretty sceptical bunch, I think. Um, Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. 
Um, so look, I want to open the floor for questions. So if anybody has any questions for Dion, um, yeah, please feel free to enter them um, into the chat um, section there. And while you're um, thinking of things, um, my, my only other question really for you is what's, what's next? What's the next big project? big thing that you're sort of, you know, fascinated by and you seem to have taken up all these amazing opportunities as they've, as they've come your way and been able to pivot by using all these sort of different areas of interest. So what, what's the next thing? Uh, I think that's a very interesting one because at the moment being a part of the business strategy and innovation to me has shaped my thinking a lot more about how can we integrate AI into businesses and organizations in general are normally you know, there's a lot of uh, hype around what, or also fear, overestimation of what AI can do. People feel that they might lose their job or, you know, the decisions might not be correct. There's a lot of things around, you know, the uh, people just basically in general don't understand AI fully. Uh, and if uh, they ever know what AI can do, uh, and they cannot, uh, they cannot even imagine that, you know, even when robots can start doing a lot of things, most likely they will not be able to fold our clothes, for example. And I use that as sort of simple examples because I always remember that I think first thing first is a lot of people don't understand what AI is all about and what it can do and what it cannot do. So it started from there. And then I thought, okay, my, my next biggest thing probably is to really looking at, you know, how can we develop some sort of framework or some sort of approach by which we can actually support businesses to start taking up AI. So basically uh, status quo, meaning that let's just wait to see how is everyone going, then uh, I will just follow. It's not going to be enough anymore because the AI as a technology now is just so, uh, so fast in terms of uh, its growth and maturity. And I think if, if a lot of uh, organizations in general, let's say if they're in terms of their business survival or it is for their competitive or for efficiency. There's a lot of reasons for companies to actually start embracing it. And as an organization, um, you know, normally the, the senior leaders uh, will, will invest, but at the end of the day, the users, the other stakeholders, will they actually back it? Will they actually use it in the long term? So to me, then the research question then becomes very much, okay, whether it is telehealth, whether it is, let's say, uh, AI-enabled telehealth, I mean, or whether it is to do with facial recognition, or anything other things uh, that AI can offer in different business contexts. The question is, how can we uh, kind of like work with all the stakeholders together and build an AI solution that possibly then will be trustworthy uh, or trustable? Um, I, I would say, I think that the interesting one is like Google Home, for example. I think by design, it's very cool. I mean, I use it at home but my wife just hates it because uh, it's <laughs> listening to us every time. And I agree, I should turn it off probably, right? But my point is, uh, there is that fear factor that unless we understand and, uh, and you know, the AI technologies develop in transparent way, then I think it will continuously be something that, you know, any AI solutions will be too scary for people. And in the long term, they might not even use it. Just like the COVID safe app, we don't even know what AI do with it, right? Or whether people, what data will be used and how it will be used. But still people are a bit skeptical about that just because they don't know uh, better. So then that really that research is how can we develop and kind of like facilitate these AI adoptions in, in com companies and, and then the, the general public as well as the communities? And uh, what is the role of government? So because they cannot, I mean, people will not listen to the government as you just highlighted earlier, right? So yeah, this will be a very interesting topic because health is one area. 
um, and another area of Pubi also is e-government. Uh, there's a lot of things that we can look at uh, in terms of smart manufacturing. There's a lot of factors. I mean, a lot of opportunities around AI in general that we can look at. And I think it's to do with people to trust technology and use it in the long term. So we have a question here um, from Elizabeth Stinton. Um, and she's asking, what's your perspective on Australia's recent digital economy agreement with Singapore? To be honest, I have not paid attention to that particular agreement just yet. So yeah, it'll be interesting to, to research more about that because ultimately I think Singapore is actually a very interesting case study in, in particular. I found that a lot, of, uh, a lot of US companies as well as Chinese companies actually partnering with uh, in, uh, in, in Singapore. They actually have research centers and innovation hubs when I was in National University of Singapore. And what I've learned about that is it, it's sort of like that uh, transit mode almost like, you know, that where ideas can be parked and can be nurtured and looking at the, the creative economy. And I know that digital economy in particular in, in Singapore is, is a lot faster than anyone else, probably anywhere else in the world. So yeah, I would definitely look with uh, deep interest in that. And sorry, I cannot comment on that just yet, Elizabeth, because I don't know uh, what is that recent agreement? But by the sound of it, if Australia have that agreement with Singapore, I hope that that means actually Australia will be uh, very much at the forefront of, because I always believe that Singapore is almost like uh, the transit of between ideas between the West and the East and everyone else. Basically, is you know we do a lot of things with it. It'll be very interesting. Um, so somebody's written, uh, love your talk. Some of my Chinese students have told me they find AI wonderful but scary. Um, I gather you would disagree with them, but would like um, to mention your reaction. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I highlighted it just then, right? I think AI is cool, but it's scary at the same time. I always think that this, I, maybe I should take one example. It's like one of my uh, general practitioner friend, GP, he said to me, stop doing telehealth beyond or doing telemedicine or AI medicine because you'll take over my job. <laughs> and then it's like I'm I think scared. lots of people fear that yeah yeah and and I, I'm just saying to him oh I know your fear exactly but at the same time how can you stop it anyways like even if I don't do it I'll be just one of the few millions of people in the whole world to actually do it right so you have to jump to the bandwagon so I actually took him to one of the conference around AI in medicine instead of you, you know he's fearing it right so in terms of uh, my reaction today is I think it's normal. And normally I'm just empathizing because ultimately, uh, you know, a lot of people even say that paper can be written by AI. So I could be out of a job too, you know, maybe we have the digital and AI uh, teacher and, you know, researchers, right? But ultimately what I still believe is that that human touch is still so important. So you know, listen with empathy and then also at the same time, understand from their perspective and then from there get them to understand AI better because when I took him to the AI conference only then he started to realize oh you're actually right he's not as cool as I thought it was like it's not as advanced yet so he asked me how long will it take before it will take all that decisions away from us I said no AI will not take away your decisions it will just augment your decisions and then from there then the understanding and that's what I mean about you know, that journey of making people understand, I think it's going to be one of the critical thing. And if we have some sort of like a guideline or a framework around that, I think it will be very much important for that. I think understanding the technology is critical. Absolutely. Oh, I think we've got time for one, one last question. Um, from your perspective, what do you think is Australia's place in the AI race going forward? Oh, that's a great one to end on. Yes. What, what do you think? <laughs> I think I highlighted in my working paper for GAI that, um, 
I was very amazed that Australia actually hosts some of the biggest companies according to Forbes uh, list as well as others. And uh, we actually are headquartered of uh, some of the major companies, including Google actually, we actually have Google in Sydney, right? So I'm just saying that I think our role is, given that we are actually so multicultural uh, and we are always driven, I mean, Australia believes a lot in democracy and we are one of the champion uh, for that in the world. And I feel very strongly that also we are a big believer in terms of sustainability and a lot of these social values. And I think it's very, very critical that we're looking at it as a leadership model here. That, And again, if we manage to get out of this um, pandemic um, soon enough, then it could be that we could be that hub. I always feel that very strongly that Australia could be that hub of ideas and experimental experimentations around AI-enabled solutions. And that's why I was super excited uh, to hear about this digital economy partnership or agreement with, with Singapore. Because when I was in Singapore, I was very, very jealous because I was in this one building where apparently they have a lot of universities, top universities, top industry companies um, uh, and government residing in one building called the Innovation Hub. And I thought like, wow, that's cool. That means you can do so much with it. And at the same time, then I start to realize, wouldn't it be nice to have that in Australia where it, it's like a bit of a uh, nice uh, neutral ground as well, because we are so multicultural and we have different beliefs, different communities that can help us to, again, regionalize our AI solutions and looking at how can we localize our solutions that can be tested in other countries uh, coming out of Australia. So yeah, I think we should be um, one of the leader, if not the leader in, in the world. Definitely. Great. Oh, well, thanks so much for that. Um, that's all we have time for, um, I'm afraid. Um, I'm sure you'll all join me um, in thanking Dion for a really, really fascinating um, conversation about something that until this week, I really knew nothing about. So um, I feel like I've learned a lot reading your paper um, and talking to you about the research that you do. So Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Everybody um, listening and watching, we will be back in two weeks' time. Next week is the mid-semester break. Um, but in two weeks' time, uh, Professor Caitlin Byrne, the Director of the Griffith Asia Institute, is taking my chair and she's going to be talking to Nico Meisner about uh, his work on Southeast Asian filmmakers. So it's bound to be a fantastic session um, and I hope you can all join us then. I'm going to really enjoy um, sitting in the audience for that one. So hope to see you all then. Thanks again, Dion. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Ray, and everyone. I'll see you all.